Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 409. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I actually have three little news stories. Uh, one's kind of a personal thing. Not only personal, but I know the owner of the site personally, and I told him I would mention this on the air today because I'm really proud of what he's done. Uh, the other two are kind of big national story news things, and I'm going to talk about all three of those a little bit. And then the main topic of today's show is going to be on land ownership. And I've done stuff on finding a perfect survival retreat before. I'm going to really talk more about land ownership in general today, and I'm going to talk about, you know, finding that rural piece of land maybe with nothing even built on it yet, and some of the advantages that actually has for people at different parts of their life. And um, two of the stories really relate to why it might be a good idea to find that piece of rural land out in the sticks, away from any of the cities, or even small towns. Um, Not so much because of the evil hordes, but because of what becoming dependent upon a city, whether it's a big city or a small town type of city, can do to you uh, over time. And and I think that will make more sense to you as we get into the main topic today. Uh, once I cover the three stories I want to cover, I think then it'll start to gel for you. Before that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, taking care of our sponsors because they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. If you want to learn how to turn your backyard, whether it's a small farm or a suburban lot, into a food production machine and account for all the things that you need, not just what you can grow in the ground, but what you can grow for protein sources, including things like uh, rabbits and chickens and geese, check out BackyardFoodProduction.com. It's an amazing video that they have available by DVD. I think it's well worth the price. I would charge more for it. I'm surprised Marjorie hasn't raised the price yet. Uh, But it really is an outstanding DVD. And every time I watch it, I still learn something new. And that does say something. And when I'm constantly learning from a product, I know it's one I can definitely recommend wholeheartedly. Uh, Sponsor of the day number two today is a new sponsor that's coming in to fill a a place that's being vacated. I'll talk about that in just a second. It's not really being vacated. It's just kind of a change-up. But our sponsor of the day number two today is ShelfReliance.com. Yes, ShelfReliance.com. Remember, these guys came on board with us about a month and a half ago in the MSB and uh, give all member support brigade uh, folks a 7% discount on all purchases on their website, uh, everything that's there. They also run specials from time to time. Well, they talked to me about becoming a sponsor for a while, and uh, we decided to bring them on board as a sponsor because we think they are absolutely one of the best companies uh, that we've ever talked to as far as their customer satisfaction and product uniqueness and fitting with the other sponsors. I really recommend you check out ShelfReliance.com. Now, real quick, I have to tell you about maybe a sponsor that you're not going to hear on the air listed as a sponsor, but you will hear me mention him from time to time uh, because he's a good friend and he has an amazing product, and that is SOE Tactical Gear. Now, some of you may not be aware of this. Uh, for a year, I've advertised for SOE Tactical Gear on the site and on the air, and I've done that because when this show was nothing, when we had like a, a dozen listeners, John Willis started sending me gear. And said, here, give this out to your listeners. And I was like, dude, I have like two dozen of them. And he's like, don't worry about it. It'll, it'll take care of itself over time. So when the show got big, I put him on the site and I gave him basically like, you'd call it an advertising scholarship for a year, you know, right? Fully funded by the institution. So I've never charged him a dime for the advertising. And his year is now up. Uh, and, that freed up a spot for someone that wanted to pay for that spot. So what I decided to do, because John is such a good guy and continues to be such a good supporting member of the uh, uh, of the pool, so to speak, out there, that really does have go to the bat for the show, I'm not going to be removing his banner from the site, but we'll be removing him from the ad rotations. That said, one last time, if you want the very toughest tactical gear you can find, Check out SOE Tactical Gear. A truck can't pull, uh, two trucks tried to pull their, their one of their belts apart and couldn't do it. That tells you something. There'll be stuff you'll hand down to your kids. All right, moving on from there, um, make sure you check out uh, all the ways you can connect with us online, you know, through the 
the social networking thing, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. We have all that. And also get involved with our forum. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And that includes things like that 7% discount to all items uh, at Shelf Reliance. Uh, it includes SafeCastle's lifetime discount membership. It includes uh, Western Botanicals uh, premium membership. Well, that's $50 a year. So if you buy that, it's $50 a year. Well, the Members Brigade is $50 a year. So basically you're getting a twofer there. Uh, I want to remind people again, I am taking American Open Currency Standard Silver uh, for those that pay by mail. And if you want, instead of paying by check or money order, you want to pay with silver, you can do that. I accept the silver at its face value, which is a value of 50 if you use AOCS Silver. Uh, if you use anybody else's silver, I charge two ounces a year. So... That's a good incentive to use AOCS Silver. I'm not going to go into that today. I think we've got the, everything wrapped up for housekeeping right at five minutes, including the interest segment. So let's go ahead and let's chat about some things that are going on out there. Let's start out with my buddy Brian uh, over at ITS Tactical, Brian Black. When I say my buddy, I mean my buddy. I mean, he and his wife come to my house, and we hang out and, you know, grill things on the grill and have a few beers and, and sit out and look at the pool and discuss uh, life and business and, and, and just as good friends do. So when I say my buddy, I, I want you to understand there is a uh, there is a, a true friendship relationship here uh, that, is, uh, that is not just he. It's he and his wife and his, his stepson uh, and my family. Well, I was talking to him uh, this weekend. He came over to take a look at my new RV, and we were chatting and having a couple beers in the kitchen. And he was telling me about how he's still getting grief uh, from some of the people in the law enforcement community because he has this whole series of amazing videos on how to escape from zip ties. Uh, so you know that sometimes law enforcement, if they don't run out of handcuffs, they'll use zip ties as a means of restraint. That's really not a good idea if you're in law enforcement. I recommend investing in two or three extra pairs of handcuffs at a minimum. Uh, or if you are going to use zip ties, I recommend you watch Brian's videos and learn appropriate restraining ways so that you know your zip tie uh, uh, restraints will be a little bit more effective. But I'll tell you right now, they're not effective. So he has this series of videos that show these deficiencies in these, uh, in these zip ties. And he's gotten great feedback from most law enforcement people because they realize that it, he's helping them. And um, he's also gotten some uh, some negative feedback, and mainly from product manufacturers that, that say, oh, I don't want to be involved with you because you're showing cops how to get killed or whatever. So I said, Brian, you got to come out with this. you got to come out swinging on it, put together a video, put together an article, explain why you do what you do and uh, demonstrate the fact that most law enforcement people, especially at the higher level, people from, like, uh, training level and, and above, are actually supporting what you're doing. And I think he's been hesitant to do that. But yesterday he came out with this amazing post, an amazing video. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And I, want, I wanted to bring that up for more than just to give him a little plug. I want that to also reach people that sometimes hear things on the Survival Podcast, and you hear me talk about things that could be construed as maybe, possibly, if you want to bend it that way, illegal activity. Uh, there, there is absolutely no place in my life for endorsement of illegal activity. It's, it's not permitted on my site. It is not permitted on my forum. It is not permitted on my blog and comments. If anybody posts anything endorsing illegal activity, it's immediately removed. But you may hear me talking about, well, if you had to uh, shoot deer and you had to be really quiet about it, here's my 44 Magnum load for a rifle that sounds like a pellet gun. And you might think, well, that's an endorsement of poaching. No, it's explained to you that if we ever get into a really bad situation where your life is on the line, these are the things that you can actually do to survive. And that when I talk about certain things, law enforcement can also look at that as, hey, during peacetime, so to speak, this is how these guys pull this stuff off, and then they're better informed as well. So I wanted you guys kind of to understand that about me, and I also would love it if you guys could watch Brian's YouTube video, rate it for him, leave a comment on his blog. I think it is the best commented on article he's ever written over there right now, and I'd like to really drive that point home and show this guy some support for being willing to come out and say flat out what happened. Because he also did something else that took courage. There was a product, I don't remember the name of it, but it's supposed to be the inescapable zip tie. And uh, you'll love this, guys. Trust me, if you're, zip ties aren't your thing, you're going to love this anyway. Uh, so he's out at SHOT Show this year. 
And this guy that makes this inescapable zip tie that now has some kind of endorsement that uh, I'm afraid of because I think it's going to get cops killed, honestly, uh, if, if they trust this endorsement. But it's the zip tie with this little metal thing that keeps you from undoing, the, picking the little lock that's on the zip ties. And the guy came up to Brian at SHOT Show, put them on his hands and said, yeah, you'll never escape from these. And Brian says to him, hey, do you, do you really want me to try this right now, right here in the middle of SHOT Show? And the guy goes, yeah, go ahead. Brian asks him a second, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to do this? The guy says, yes. Yeah. So Brian takes his hands, lifts them up over his head, and bam, breaks right out of him, leaves his product in three pieces on the floor in the middle of SHOT Show. So he came out and basically trashed that product. said, this is a bad product. Uh, don't trust this product. Don't buy this product for your department. That also took some courage. So that's cool as well. And I, I really wish I would have went to SHOT Show because I would have loved to have that on video. Anyway, moving on. Next one I wanted to talk to you about today is Marlin Firearms is closing. Somebody sent me an email about this last week, and i got to tell you, it hurt my heart when I heard this. Uh, anybody that's listened to this show for any length of time knows that there's certain companies and there's certain products that I have personal affinity with. And that could never be more the case with, uh, with, with, than with Marlin Firearms. But I didn't bring it to you Monday because the story was evolving and I wanted to get the story correct and I wanted to get it accurate. And uh, in my efforts to do that, um, I wanted to wait and see what actually is happening here. When the story originally came out, it seemed as though the Marlin brand was going to be gone forever, as though they were closing the doors and there would be no more Marlin 22s, no more Marlin 3030s, no more Marlin. And uh, that's why I took it on Friday, because that's how the, the first AP story that came out read. Uh, it really did read that way, and, and I was deeply saddened by that, because, I mean, we're talking about a true American icon in the Marlin Firearms Company. Uh, but wh here's what's actually happening. Uh, Remington bought Marlin uh, a while ago, and actually Marlin bought NEF H&R a, a little while before that, so... What we had is three companies rolled up together, and uh, Marlin eventually moved the NEF H&R manufacturing to their site in New Haven, Connecticut, and now Remington is moving the manufacturing for Marlin NEF H&R to their plant in New York and consolidating operations as a cost-cutting measure. So the Marlin firearms are not going away. If you want to, you know, some, and this is the plant will close by I think it's mid 2011, but they're going to start. Start doing layoffs in uh, May of this year. So that's just a couple months. And the, the employees feel very blindsided uh, by, this, uh, by this announcement. And uh, obviously I understand why. But if you want a Marlin rifle or shotgun or twenty two or what have you that was built in uh, the New Haven, Connecticut plant, I would get one now because very soon they're going to have all that manufacturing moved. Now, how does this tie into my discussion about owning land in a rural area and, and why that may be a good idea? And building your life in a rural area that's not directly dependent on cities, whether even if they're small town type cities. New Haven, Connecticut's not a big metropolis. It's a, it, it is big in some ways, but in a lot of other ways, it's kind of like a big city, small town mixed together. And uh, the outskirts of it are really neat and quaint. It's that great New England feel. And uh, But you know what? It's 260 or something like that employees at Marlin that are losing their job. I don't remember if it's 265 or uh, what exactly the number is. I'll try. 345 uh, employees were at the North Haven, uh, and I keep calling it New Haven. It's North Haven, Connecticut. Uh, but that was already trimmed down to 225. So from the time that the plant was purchased until now, they've already lost over 100 employees. And now the remaining 225 workers, uh, well, let's see. Let me read it to you so I get this right. Marlow was acquired by Remington in 2008. There were 345 paid employees in North Haven and another 225 workers at the Marlin facility in Gardner, Mass., which is the NEF H&R operation. Today, only 265 remain. Uh, they've been notified they're not going to be working beyond mid-2011. So what we had is this fairly large two-plant operation now going down to zero. So and in, in these areas that are not these huge, like I said, big-time cities, it's not New York, it's not Boston, right, it's not L.A., um, so what happens in a, a, a borough the size of uh, North Haven 
or in a, a an area the size of Gardner, Mass, when 345 people lose their job. Well, what happens is not only do those people um, get hit hard, but an entire little group of cottage industries have developed around those 345 people as support mechanisms, and the entire economy of these two towns is, is, is deeply damaged. And that is going to be the case with Marlin Farms. And it was the one thing that the people in the town you know, could depend on. It's been there forever. It's been there for more than 100 years. The company goes back to the Civil War. Of course they'll be here next year. Well, no, they're not. Now, how does that tie into our land discussion today? We'll get to that. Let's, uh, let's chat about another story that I find uh, equally disturbing. Uh, probably more disturbing, though I don't have the emotional attachment to it, uh, that I do to, to Marlin. Uh, but there is an article that was on Lou Rockwell last week by Gary North, and it's called Healthcare in Detroit Killed by Big Government. And basically he draws an analogy between what big government has done to Detroit and how that's going to be what they'll eventually do to healthcare and how everything they touch is basically lead and sinks. I don't want to get into healthcare today, but I do want to talk to you about Detroit, and I want to give you some startling statistics. Let me read a little bit from this article to you. In 1994, the median sales price of a house in Detroit was about $41,000. The housing bubble pushed it up to about $98,000 in 2003. So you could go buy property for forty-one dollars in Detroit. And of course, there was much higher and much lower priced property at the time, but this is inside the city proper, forty-one dollars Housing bubble over 10 years pushes it up to 98. You double your money, not bad, right? In March 2009, the price was about $13,600. Today, the price is $7,000. And there's a link to a price chart that you can look at. And the article continues, there has never been a collapse of residential real estate values of this magnitude in peacetime history anywhere. Detroit is dying. We are unfamiliar with anything like this. The media are silent. The powers that be are not interested in reporting on this because readers might ask the obvious question, how did it happen? Obvious questions tend to lead to obvious answers. Detroit has been killed by flight out of the city. The 2008 Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino, dealt with that problem. And it goes on from there. But I really want you to think about this. Uh, reading from another part of the article, there's no surge of buyers taking advantage of the fabulously low prices in Detroit. Can you imagine buying a home for cash for $13,600 in 2009, a house that sold for $98,000 six years earlier, and still losing half your money? It's that incredible. So what they're saying is if you would have bought that house for thirteen six a few months ago, now it's worth seven. So, I, it is hard for me to comprehend exactly uh, how bad this is. Uh, someday maybe I need to take a, a trip to Detroit. I haven't been there in, in 15, 20 years to understand how bad this has gotten. Listen to this. The Wall Street Journal recently ran one of its most creative stories I've seen in years. The journalist told the story of the history of a five-bedroom home in Detroit from the, land from, its, from the land purchase to its recent sale. It was built by one of the most influential men you have never heard of, Clarence Avery. Avery was on the Ford Motor Company team that conceived of implementing the assembly line for the Ford factory. He copied the idea from a hog slaughtering operation. Um, his home was very nice for the time. The journalist located his daughter, now aged 91. She said that she always thought the home was the best home she ever lived in. As recently as 2005, the home sold for $250,000. It was purchased by a woman who was lent $200,000 to buy it. It was financed by a subprime loan. The asking price was $189,000. Where the other 61000 went, the woman has no idea. She defaulted. These numbers almost don't make sense. In 2005, the home sold for $250,000. It was purchased by a woman who was lent $200,000 to buy it. It was financed by a subprime loan. The asking price was $189,000. You can see why we're in trouble with what with the, with the lenders have done. The deteriorating house was recently bought by a Christian organization that is renovating it. They bought the house for $10,000. 
This is simply inconceivable to anyone who is familiar with Detroit since 2005. Nothing like this has ever happened. How can we conceive of a lender lending $200,000 to a woman to buy a quarter million dollar house offered at $189,000? How can we conceive of a fall in price from $250,000 to $10,000? This is the sign of a dying city. This does not happen in a normal environment. Even with the mania created by Freddie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in conjunction with Alec Greenspan's Federal Reserve, nothing like this has happened anywhere else. If you had predicted anything like this in 2005, you would have been dismissed as a crackpot on crack. You would not have been taken seriously by anyone. Yet it happened. And so why are we chatting about this today? Because I want you to understand something about cities. All cities can die. And most cities have died. Many of them have been reborn. Uh, but most cities at some point in their life cycle die. Because they're built up on some form of industry that is typical to that city, that is unique to that city, uh, that is the primary way by which that city actually grows. With Detroit, it was the auto industry. All industries eventually die. Period. I mean, that is, that is just a fact. I guess the ones that are going to be sustainable because they'll evolve to be sustainable uh, are things like the entertainment industry. So Hollywood, believe it or not, may be one of the most stable places in the world. Uh, that may not be true. I'm not sure. I'm kind of you know spitballing on that one. But the reality is that entertainment is always evolving. It's always changing. A lot of technology uh, comes from the entertainment industry. But every other industry, eventually technology will kill it off. And that's, you know, that's a harsh reality. If you look at the auto industry, it was a failure to evolve by the big three that really did them the most harm. That, and they also played with this subprime lending. They just, you know, they played with it in, in the, in the loans for cars world. And you're selling 40 and 50 and 60 thousand dollar cars to people that make 25 and 35 thousand dollars a year. Well, this just doesn't make any sense, but everybody's got to have a car, right? So a lot of their growth was built on selling giant SUVs to people, and I don't have anything against a giant SUV, but they sold them to people that couldn't afford them, and they sold them to a lot of people who were just stupid. All right? I was listening to Dave Ramsey yesterday when I was in the vehicle, and this guy calls in, and basically they've got all their debt under control. They're paying off the last bit of it. Things are going pretty well. They're pretty happy with the way things are, but the wife is pregnant, and she's going to have a baby. So Dave says, so what? He goes, well, we're not really ready to buy a new car yet, but my wife says we need an SUV. Dave says, why? He says, we don't really have a big enough car to cart the kid, new kid around in. He goes, you don't have a car that will hold three people? And he goes, well, both of our cars will hold three people. He said, well, you're about to have two and a half people. If they'll hold, you know. And I guess his point that the, the, the guy never even seemed to get, and Dave didn't really make very eloquently, is if you're having a baby, and it's your first baby, the last thing you need is an SUV. Now, there may be a point in time where it's going to be nice to have an SUV or a minivan or a crossover because you're going to be sitting there and carting around that kid and taking him to soccer and you'll have a new baby and you have two kids and all the kids' friends show up and everything like that. Infants don't have friends. Infants don't go to soccer games. You've got years was the point he was trying to make. These are the things, though, that create an industry that is built with a weak foundation. At one time, the United States auto industry had a massive foundation. No matter what happened to it, it could rebuild very well. Today, things are different, and people are looking for vehicles with better mileage, and how does this all pertain to cities? Well, it doesn't matter what the industry is. All industries evolve that way, and all cities can eventually die. Detroit just happens to be the most recent city to die. And if you don't believe that all cities can die, you should study a little bit of archaeology, and you'll find out that some of the cities that were the greatest cities in the world at one time are now barren and desolate, and people dig up the walls of those cities to look at them. And one thing we're supposed to take from history is that history repeats itself. Maybe we need to have a better understanding of that. All right, so... With that, let's go ahead and talk about land ownership for a while, and now maybe it makes sense to you what I was talking about in the beginning of today's show, that owning land and having it be a source of true wealth, as I call it, is best done outside of these cities and outside of even uh, the, the small town that's dependent on one or two industries. 
And I don't like seeing towns dependent on industries. I, I, I hate even seeing it up in hot springs. Let me give you an example of what's going on in hot springs. And I guess if you build a life that doesn't require the town to be your source of income, it's okay to be closer to the towns. Uh, but I'd like to be a little bit further away. I honestly would. And I'm just as far away as my wife will let me be. But inside of uh, hot springs and inside of many towns like it throughout Arkansas, Obviously, Walmart has a tremendous amount of influence. Uh, and generally speaking, if you go look for a, a kind of store like Walmart, a Walmart competitor, you only find two things. You find Walmart and you find Sam's Club owned by Walmart. You don't see a lot of Targets. You don't see uh, a Costco. And Costco apparently wanted to come in to Hot Springs. And Walmart told the people that run Hot Springs, you bring Costco in and we'll close every store we have and we'll pull out and we'll take all our jobs with us and we'll leave. Now, I sure as hell wish somebody there had a spine. I really do. Because you know what I would have said? Go ahead. Dirty Harry, make my day. You know what? If you want to leave this town wide open to your competitors, we'll give them tax incentives you can't imagine. And we'll bring every single one. We'll, we'll have them. They'll be moving stuff into your building when you're moving out. We'll go out and start recruiting them tomorrow. You can either have competition or you can leave. Those are your two choices. But they didn't do that. And there's a lot of little towns like that throughout America. And anywhere you go, you'll go to a town and it just looks like a normal town. But if you talk to the people, you'll find out that there's a dependency on one or two companies or on a specific industry. Uh, in Indiana, there's some towns that are highly dependent on the RV industry, as I just found out. Uh, no, but no matter where you go, there's something like that. And when that fails the economy of that town is adversely affected. So to me, it makes a lot of sense to look for property that's away from those towns. And here's why. People that buy land out in the country are generally people that can afford to live anywhere, and they choose to live out in the country. And what I've seen with rural real estate prices, especially the stuff that's 20 or 30 acres, uh, out in the sticks, so to speak, I haven't seen those land prices drop at all in the last couple of years. Maybe 1% or 2% here or 3 or 4% there. But when I look at those vacant 30-acre parcels, the land has held its value. It's become a store of value. Now, someone told you that. Someone told you that several years ago. said, hey, if you're going to go into real estate right now, the place to, to the look is out in the sticks and buying that retreat property because that land is going to continue to grow in value and it's not going to have the bottom fall out from underneath it. Because the entire bottom of the entire United States everywhere has to fall out. And to some degree, the entire value of property throughout the world has to fall because as long as the United States exists as a society where people can buy land, own land, and have individual property rights... There's always a buyer for land. And the land that's most likely to be stable is land where the person's income is independent from the geography. And the further you get away from towns and businesses, the more that's the case. So that's one of my big reasons there. And as you can see, in a kind of smallish little borough like North Haven, and in a great big giant city like Detroit, both of those populations can see drastic effects to their local economy through a single industry, or in the case of North Haven, a single company going under. So, kind of moving on from there, let's, uh, let's look at what my thoughts on land are, and, and, and maybe some creative ways that you can think about acquiring land. First, let's talk about a land purchase, and what a land purchase will actually cost you. Now, I've started looking, and I've found a lot of land in the range of between 5 and 30 acres, and depending on what part of the country you look, I've seen parcels in that range go from as low as $10,000 to well up over $100,000. Let's call it a median price of about thirty dollars to $40,000 for a really big piece of land. And I'm talking 20 to 40 acres or more. That sounds like a huge purchase. And a lot of people, you tell them, well, I'm looking at buying 20 acres out in the country and it's going to cost me $29,000 or $34,000 or what have you. will say, wow, that seems risky to buy that land for $34,000, right? And then you look at the car that person's driving and they're driving maybe a brand new Chevy pickup truck or, or something like that. And you go, you know, what'd you pay for that truck? And they're like, well, $36,000, $37,000, $38,000 or more, sometimes $40,000. 
And then my question to them is five years from now, when you've paid off the loan on that truck, what will the truck be worth? And the number is going to be somewhere south of $10,000. Five-year-old trucks sell for nine to twelve grand. And if they get used and abused and driven the way a truck is meant to, that they're down in that range. Maybe you get 14, maybe 15. If it's completely loaded out and you paid 45, maybe you can get 18, 20, maybe. So, but you're looking at half or less of the value of the vehicle. And I'm being optimistic with those prices. Well, my question to you is if I buy $32,000 worth of land, what's it going to be worth in five years? If I buy the right piece of property for the right reasons in the right area? It could be worth 28. It could be worth 48. But it actually has the potential to go up. The, the vehicle you purchase for the same price has zero potential of rising in value over a five or ten year period. And if you really want to look at the return of investment on a vehicle, look at owning a vehicle for ten years. The, the return of investment is you spent the money and you got the service from the vehicle because what's left in the value of the vehicle then is a couple grand, if that. If you, you might be taking it to a junkyard, depending on what it was when you bought it. Uh, maybe nobody even wants it anymore. You might have a quarter million miles on it. It might be falling apart. But it certainly isn't going to be worth more money in 10 years than the day you bought it. Land, historically, has always been worth more money 10 years down the road. And like I've said, even with this big real estate crash, and I was hoping to be wrong about how stable the rural land was be, would be. Because I was hoping that I would be wrong and prices would drop even there and create a buying opportunity so that I could look at purchasing more land. It, I'm telling you, I've watched it. It hasn't happened. So there's another fundamental reason that I have for looking for those, those rural pieces of land. Let's talk about another concept. I think a lot of people romanticize. And uh, I can tell you there's some real advantages once it's done. But it's something you better consider highly before you make a final choice on what you're going to be doing. And that's the whole off-grid thing. I'm going to buy land with no electrical service, no water service, no nothing, no telephone, whatever. I'm going to put in my own solar system and wind system and things like that. Uh, those things are more expensive than you think they are. And I'll tell you that it's much easier to put together a small home tied to the electrical grid and slowly bring yourself off of the grid through the use of alternative energy products like solar and wind, than it is to start out with nothing. It's like the, the thing that I constantly tell you about food. One of the biggest reasons that you should be storing food is if you have a month's worth of food and no more food is coming in, figuring out and finding a place to get more, to provision more, to hunt for more, to forage for more, to do whatever it takes to feed yourself on day 31 is actually very easy to do. It's really not that hard. There's so many things out there that we can eat. There's so many ways we can change our situation. But, but, if you're going to star start starving tomorrow, finding more food becomes complicated. Because there's a stress level and your energy level is in decline when it needs to be at peak. Does that make sense? I hope so. So, when we look at putting in alternative energy... Being able to actually sleep warm and, and sleep cool uh, from air conditioning and heating, being able to cook your food, uh, well, I guess you can do that with propane pretty inexpensively, but you get my point, being able to turn the lights on, being able to have all the conveniences that we take for granted on a daily basis, and then saying, okay, now I'm going to bring in some solar and I'm going to slowly wean myself off of this grid system is a lot easier. So I'm not saying not to buy places off the grid. In fact, you might find some really amazing values by doing that. What I'm saying, however, is really think about it. Make sure, because I, I know so many people have bought things. And here's what it makes me think of. Back when I was a kid in high school, we're talking uh, the 80s here, um, there were a lot of cars out there that were built in the 70s, like early 70s, the last vestiges of the American muscle car, one of the greatest eras in automotive history as far as I'm concerned. And you could even get stuff like 68s and 69s, and those were a little bit more pricey, but there were a lot of beat-up ones. It was up in the northeast, the salt on the roads in the winter and all, lots of body rust and things like that, so people would sell these cars fairly inexpensively. And you could buy a lot of cars then for nothing. They were like early 70s models that today, if they were restored, would be worth a lot of money. 
And I'm talking about stuff like 1970s, 19, you know, 70 to 72 Monte Carlos, 70 to 74 Pontiac Grand Prix, and things like that. Camaros from that era as well were a little more expensive, but not as bad. But you could buy these cars for five, six hundred bucks. I bought my first car. It was a uh, 72 Pontiac Grand Prix LJ um, for two hundred dollars. And a lot of these guys you'd see buy these cars for a couple hundred dollars. I was under no, you know, I bought the car because it worked. And I drove it until it fell apart, and then I junked it for 50 bucks. So I, it cost me $150 to drive that car, uh, other than some mild, minor repairs and things that I did to keep it running and oil changes uh, for about a year and a half. So I thought that was a good enough uh, return on it. But a lot of these guys would buy these cars, and they would drive around and go, Man, one day when I get some money. I'm going to fix this car up. I'm going to put Krager mags on it and Kelly tires. And I'm going to have 60s in the back and 70s in the front. And I'm going to jack it up. And I'm going to get a clear coat red cherry paint on it. right? And you'd see that guy five years later driving that car. And it looked worse than ever. It would have a green fender, a white hood, a brown door, a hole in the roof, a cracked back window, the muffler hanging off. And the reality was he wasn't in any place in life to ever get some money one day and fix it up. And he didn't have the technical know-how to do it himself inexpensively. Because a lot of guys would do things like they would take Votech in high school and take auto body and learn how to do these things and restore their own car. Those were the ones that got it done. What was the big difference? They both lived in the same economy, right? They uh, both had the same job opportunities, really. One might go into auto body as a career, but basically they had the same income potential living in that small coal town in Pennsylvania. But the ones that would get their cars fixed up were the ones that had a skill set so that they could compensate at the income level and get the work done. So if you're going to say that I'm going to go and buy this piece of land that I'm going to put in solar and wind and everything, you better either have the skill set or be willing to learn it and start now. Go ahead and build that little solar backup system. Get two, you know, deep cycle batteries, put them in a box, get a 60, uh, 60 watt solar panel, get an inverter, get a charge controller, and build a solar backup system. It's not that hard because it'll immediately give you confidence. It'll make you realize that there really isn't that much complicated about putting in a basic solar system and start learning about wind and start learning about all these things and learn about you know wiring and, and some electrical stuff and realize hey it's cool to bring the electrician in to do the final pieces of work but really think before you make that big leap and say I'm going to buy a property with no power on it I'll tell you right now I'm not adverse to doing it but it's something you really have to consider the other thing is water um, you need to really find out what it's going to cost to put a well on a piece of property. And you need to find out before you make an offer on that property. And if you do that, you're going to find that it's going to help you make a decision with a lot more information than you normally have. It's easy to look and go, ah, oh, well, it'll be about four or $5,000. Well, not if the water table's 500 feet down because it's up on a hilltop, and not if the person has to drill through rock to get to the water. Where you might be in a place where they can throw a well in for $2,000. And the person selling it might not know that. Either way, you create a leverage point. If I'm looking at a piece of property and I go get a well quote on it, it's twelve grand. do not think I'm not going to go to the seller and go, look, man, I'm going to have to spend $12,000 just to put a well in on here. Now, anybody else that comes out here and looks at this property and is considering it for the type of use I am is going to get the same quote because they're going to go to the same people that I went to. Here's, I'll hand it to you. Here's my quote. You're going to have to come down on price. You know, Maybe we could split the difference here. Maybe it's a $6,000 price drop. What do you have in the property? I'm willing to take it off your hands and, and buy. But you need to know these things in advance. Um my next thing is, I want you to always be able to see what a property can become. In other words, to be able to look at a property that's tangled with brambles and, and bushes and trees and, and see, well, if I push this out and cut this down and do this, and upon, I want you to be able to see that vision. That's so important when you're looking at buying property to have a vision. But just like the well and the expense and just like the you know off-grid stuff and the expense plus 
the knowledge and work necessary to get it done. Stay in touch with the expense and knowledge and work it's going to take to take that piece of tangled, gnarled property and turn it into your vision. Because it's a lot more work than you think it is. Uh, we have become accustomed to thinking of yard work and, and planting and gardening and tree pruning and, and all these things the way they work in suburbia. And we think, boy, that's pretty tough work, but, you know, I can get it done. But we're working on relatively flat surfaces, and generally when you buy a house, it has a lawn, and you might have to bust sod or whatever, but it's not usually tangled with, with brambles and tree roots and things like that. And if you go start trying to clear even a 50-foot by 50-foot area that's currently wooded with a chainsaw and an axe and do this manually, you're going to find out real quick how tough it is. You're going to get a new respect. You're going to have a huge new respect for our founders. The P, and I don't mean our government founders. I mean the founders of this country that went, went yet west, young man. And went out there and did it themselves. The original homesteaders that went out there when you couldn't call a guy with a bulldozer because it didn't exist. To the people that built a root cellar by creating a scoop and using a donkey or a horse to drag that scoop over and over and over and over again. And sent their kids out with a wagon to bring back stones to line the floor with. These are, and that's a real story from uh, northern Canada of some homesteaders that I read a while ago. It was pretty amazing the way they built the cellar, and then they built the, the kitchen over top of the cellar. And it took a summer to build a cellar for the house. And then they had no kitchen, basically. They had to cook outside in the winter and over the fireplace in what I guess would have been the living room because they, you know, they ran out of time to build the kitchen. And then next spring, they built the kitchen on top of the root cellar. To think of, of, of people that could go out and do that, it, it awes me. It inspires me because if they could do it then, we could do it now. So what I'm saying is you might also, when you're you know, thinking about buying this land and you're creating your vision for what it could be, phone up a couple heavy equipment operators that are local to the area. There's always a farmer with a bulldozer who's willing to be hired out for $50 an hour or whatever and say, hey, I'd like you to come buy this property. I'll give you 50 bucks for your time because this can save, 50 bucks is well spent. Right, because when you you know you got a guy you can use over and over again until you find the right piece of property. But if it keeps you from making a huge mistake, that might be on you know a piece of property you're spent thirty grand on. That might be a huge, huge, well spent fifty bucks. So the guy comes out and you say, "Here's what I'm thinking about doing. I want you to tell me how feasible it is. I want you to tell me about how long it would take you to do it and how much you would charge me to do it." It's one thing that you're going to get a price, and that's good. You get a price, the guy says, okay, look, I can do all of this, and it's going to be about seven grand. So now you factor that into the total cost of your homestead and getting it to the way that you want it to be, whether it's for a bug-out retreat, whether it's for a vacation home, whether it's for a deer lease, or whether it's a place that you eventually want to live full-time, you factor that into your total cost of operations. But the big savings is going to be when the guy goes, yeah, I can't do that. And you go, why? And he goes, see that rock outcropping, that... Under there's probably six inches of dirt and that's solid rock there. I give I, I, you dynamite to do what you want to do there. Or no, I can't put a pond in for you here unless you bring in a liner because I know the soil in this area and this soil's not going to hold the water back. You know. Or yeah, I know you think that's easy to do and you think you can park your trailer there, but really that is a bad place for it. You really want it over here, and, and then you have to decide whether you can live with these things. And you want to have those answers before you make an offer, not after you've purchased the property. And most people do that completely reversed around. So that's, that's another big thing that I want you to watch out for out there. The next thing, I want to kind of inspire you maybe to look for solutions where other people see problems. Now, I also want to remind you what I've been saying up till now. When you see the solution... Make sure you get a price for the solution in the form of a quote from somebody capable of implementing the solution and from an expert who can look at your solution and tell you whether it's going to work or not. But I'll give you an example of what I mean. I think I read this in one of Robert Kiyosaki's books on real estate. I believe it was Rich Dad's Guide to Real Estate. I could be wrong, but I do remember reading the story. In this story, the investor wanted to buy this piece of mountain property. It had a couple cabins on it. I think he wanted to basically let a daughter live in one of the cabins and then rent the other cabin as a vacation cabin. 
and uh, like there was a smaller cabin for the vacationers, and it was a pretty decent cabin, like a three-bedroom cabin for his daughter. And basically, he was going to say, "Hey, look, you live here, and you take care of the income side of things. You know, take reservations, make sure nobody's trashing my cabin." You know, clean it up after you know one family leaves and the next family comes in to stay there for vacation, and uh, you can live there for free. And it's you know a good thing for a father to do for a daughter and everything. But when he started looking at the property, the price was ridiculously low. So immediately his radar goes off and says, "Hey, you know uh, something's wrong here." So he looks into it. And what it turns out is there's a well on the property. It doesn't have any access to city water, and none's coming anytime soon. The problem with the well is for several months of the year, it doesn't produce enough water to sustain the households. Basically, the well runs dry in the driest part of the year, and it happens pretty much every year. And then later in the season, as it starts to rain again and the water table comes up, um, the, the water comes back. So what you're looking at is either putting in a deeper well, which is going to be quite expensive for some reason. I don't remember exactly why. Or you need another solution, or you're living without water. Now, the survivalist would say, hey, put some rain catchment in. But this guy's a real estate investor. He's not going to worry about rain catchment, especially for his daughter. He wants a simpler solution. So he brings a well guy in initially to look at the well and determine how much deeper to put the well in. And the well guy just looks at it and goes, you don't need a deeper well. And the guy goes, what do you mean I don't need a deeper well? They say about two to three months a year this well runs dry. He goes, yeah, but this well right now is producing a lot of water. And the investor's like... You're not hearing me. I'm worried about when it doesn't produce water. And the guy that puts the wells in also does, you know, water tanks and all says, dude, all you need is a couple big holding tanks. So what we'll do is we'll put some big holding tanks in here. We can even put them underground for you. And we'll put in reserve, let's say, you know, 10,000 gallons of water. And that's going to be a hell of a lot less expensive than putting in a new well. He says, well, you know, get, you got a price for it. I, I, I think it was like... It was only like $7,000 to do what this guy wanted to do with a couple holding tanks. And uh, I guess it was easy to get in and dig or what have you, you know, and, and tanks aren't really that expensive. So, of course, the guy doesn't tell the seller that he's found the solution. He goes to the seller, negotiates the price even further down, says, look, you know you have this problem. Here's what I'm willing to pay. They meet in the middle. He buys the property, has the water tanks put in, and while the well's at peak capacity, it's simply filling those tanks, and the house is drawing water from the tanks, and the cabin's drawing water from the tanks, and everybody gets through the dry part of the year, and the complex solution became a simple solution because the guy buying the property looked deeper, and more importantly, he brought in an expert to help him determine the solution and the cost of the solution. And here's the big one. When the expert was talking, the guy shut up and listened, and it saved him, if I remember right, about $20,000 overall on the cost of the solution and the additional negotiation off the cost of the property. 20000 is real money, folks, for me and you. I know for those clowns on Capitol Hill, twenty grand they wipe their nose with that on a daily basis. They use it in their jet fuel to fly home a couple times a month and what have you. But for the rest of us, twenty thousand is real money. We can do a lot with that. In fact, with twenty thousand dollars, we can go out and buy land. Uh, now I did set the bar a little higher. I started the pricing at twenty-five thousand dollars. But I know some of you people are out there going, "This guy's crazy. You can't buy forty acres of land or thirty acres of land for thirty thousand dollars. It's impossible. It doesn't exist." I know I've looked. Well, um, I'm on United Country, which is not notoriously a place to find the best price property. You can almost always negotiate these prices down, and they're always priced a little bit higher than their market value. Is what I've seen is I've actually viewed a few of them, and uh, there's always flexibility in that price because of that. Because if you're going to finance it, the bank's going to have an appraisal done anyway. But I did a nationwide search here, and what I specified is greater than 20 acres of land and priced between 25 and uh, 30,000 or 25 and 50,000 um, dollars. I found more than 200 properties, and they're all over the U.S. Let me just give you an example, and I'm not endorsing any of these. I'm just saying if you start looking, here's some of the things that are out there. Here's some property in Lubbock, Maine: acreage, low taxes, timber regrowth, road. Uh, in partway wooded and a great recreation property, 112 acres, $25,000. Here's another one. This is in Thatcher, Colorado. 
So we're not going to be in just one part of the United States with this, folks. 36.58 acres, Thatcher Estates, near the National Grasslands on the historic Santa Fe Trail. Suitable for grazing, enjoy the views and wildlife, rock formations and cactuses. So this is kind of in that high Colorado desert. 36.58 acres, $25,000. Let's skip a little bit further down here. Here's one in uh, Davenport, Washington, 20 acres. Uh, great views from the top, trees with open areas secluded, close to town, close to Lake Roosevelt, great campsite, good hunting, 20 acres, $25,000. Um, Trinidad, Colorado, $26,000 for 37 acres. Um, 62, uh, let's see, what is this, 30 acres in New Mexico, bordering National Forest. So you have a National Forest on your border, $27,500. Oklahoma, uh, Solensaw, Oklahoma, $28,000 for 40 acres. Uh, Let's see here, 42.43 acres of woodlands in West Virginia for $29,000. Well under 1,000 an acre on that parcel. 20 acres in, again, West Virginia, $29,900. Uh, Pettigrew, Arkansas, $29,900 for 20 acres. Uh, Ancho, New Mexico, $30,000 for 30 acres. And, I mean, I know some of you are, I don't live in any of those places. Well, maybe you need to look. And I've been from Washington to Maine to New Mexico. So I've been pretty much all around, in Colorado, I've been pretty much all around the country here. Here's Hardy, Arkansas, 20 acres. Looks at beautiful pictures, uh, $30,000. Uh, Cole City, Washington, 20 acres for 30000 That looks like... That looks like the Great Plains to me, if there's nothing there. Um, Here's 35 acres in uh, Gardner, Colorado for $35,000. Here's uh, some more New Mexican land, uh, $30,000 for 30 acres. Uh, Let me try to find something. Oregon, um, 160 acres for $32,000. Why am I doing this? Just to make a point. The land's out there if you look for it. Because I hear from people all the time, I can't find land. Well, I just found all of that. In about 10 seconds on this website, again, United Country. Again, I'm not in love with United Country. I have some issues with them on their pricing uh, and their business model, and they seem to always have, again, those prices a little bit inflated. But here's what I found. It is a great way to find the little cherry-picked spots with a lot of rural land available. So now you know that a particular city or town or area of the state has good rural land at a reasonable price. Now you can contact local real estate agents uh, and local land uh, companies in that area and see what else is available on the local economy, which you should do anyway. Even if you think you found a great property, you should always do uh, not just a comparative analysis that will be done for you, but of your own, because you might find that you know what you were in love with, you found something even a little bit better. So always do your your window shopping. And with land, I think it's important that we kind of finish up with one thing that I think is the most important lesson that I've ever learned about negotiating and buying anything that's expensive, whether it's a car, a recreational vehicle, a piece of land, a house. I don't care what it is. If it's more than a few hundred dollars and you're negotiating, you must, and I mean you absolutely must, always be willing to walk away from any deal. If you walk into a situation where you have an emotional attachment to what you're negotiating, you will make a poor decision. And odds are the negotiator across the table from you will sense that in you and will hold firm on places where he would have been willing to negotiate otherwise. It's amazing what happens when you say, look, I'm sorry, I can't go any higher than this. If the deal's off, the deal's off. right?" And sometimes you're sitting $10,000 apart at that point. And that guy may never even come down to, to where you were, but you might not actually, you might be fibbing a little bit. Like I might, you know, I can go down seven, seven more. And you might be like, great, that's, and you might have been willing to pay full price. But it's important that we know how to negotiate. And negotiation comes from a clear mental focus and a logical decision process and full knowledge of the situation that you're going into. When you do that, you can negotiate some incredible deals on land right now. And in spite of what I said about the land value staying solid in the rural areas, they have. But that's in comparison uh, to land values in the cities. And there's some things driving this right now. I mean, homesteading is hot. You see it in all the magazines, people moving out to the little homesteads, people homesteading in the city, you know, people that are buying some of these two and $3,000 homes in Detroit and just bulldozing them and hauling them away and turning them into urban farmland. 
And actually, Detroit has great soil for, for growing farms, so it's a pretty smart uh, utilization. So there are some things kind of propping up the rural market. It's inherent stability, the fact that people want that type of, uh, of a lifestyle, and that lifestyle is becoming new, and the fact that everybody looking forward is beginning to realize that food prices are going to go sharply up over the next 20 years, and that land that can produce food is going to have inherent value. So all those things are doing that, but yet there's still a lot of people out there sitting on land, and all it is to them is a, is a sore because they have to pay a few hundred dollars in taxes on it a year. Because maybe no structure, maybe it's rural. But, I mean, if you have to pay $800 a year to keep a piece of property that you really don't want, then a lot of times, even though the market value might be X, if there's not a ready buyer for that at X, you'll sell it at Y to get rid of it. So the deals are out there. The deals are out there right now, and there may not be a better time. And, and I'll, I'll kind of finish up with why I would actually say something like there may not ever be a better time to buy rural real estate than right now. If you've been listening to the show a long time, you know that I've said that 2010 won't be that bad a year, and that 2011 might even be a bit better, that we're going to go through a false recovery, a giant bubble created by this tsunami of government money that is just now starting to be released. You know all that stimulus money that we've heard about? It's all coming now. It's all coming right now, and it hasn't really come until now. And it's going to keep coming from here on out till Election Day. Don't think it wasn't planned that way by the Democrats who put it through. So when you put enough money into the economy, the, uh, the, the Keynesian economist is correct. It will improve and, and, and boost the economy, but it does it short term. It does it like a credit card. If you're broke, but I give you a credit card with a $100,000 limit on it, everything's great until you have to pay the bill, and you look like you're flying high again, right? Well, that's what's going to happen to our economy. If I'm wrong and the recovery becomes sustainable because we do some smart things, which I'm becoming le less optimistic about it, then we have a sustained recovery. We either get a bubble and a drop. We either get an immediate drop because I'm completely wrong, or we get a sustained recovery. In all three scenarios, rural real estate is going to increase in value. Here's why. In a false recovery, all land prices will begin to rebound, and that will push up land prices throughout the United States, specifically in rural environments as people become more confident and credit becomes easier to acquire once again to purchase property with. And a lot of people who have been hunkering down, waiting to buy, will go out and start buying those little places out in the country. So a sustained recovery uh, or a short-term recovery, both of them drive up rural real estate property. If the crash continues, then the intrinsic value of land away from the cities and their problems and the ability to create that homestead environment that provides some of your own needs becomes more and more attractive to the person that wanted to get the hell out of there anyway. Further, as more and more companies do cost-cutting operations, allowing people to do things like telecommute, the need to live in these cities and towns for a lot of people will be abated because they can earn their same income level or even a little bit less and live where they want to. So up, down, sideways, rural real estate is going to continue to do well and eventually will go up in price. That's the way I see it. If I'm wrong, the only way I'm going to be wrong is if the big meltdown comes and everything falls through the floor and then you're going to want it just to be able to get the hell away from people. So I see it as one of the safest plays out there. If you go into it with open eyes and common sense, let me take this moment to answer a question I've answered before, but um, I keep getting it, so obviously people haven't all, all people haven't heard the answer. And is once we move to Arkansas and we give up our property here in Arlington, and we're on our retreat property at that point, will we buy another piece of property? The answer is absolutely, 100% yes. I'm already looking. And what I'm looking for is something in between 20 and 40 acres within an hour or two at maximum from where we already live because we're already so close to the edge of being remote. Another two hours, and we're really out in the middle of the sticks, and there's a lot of property up there that borders that national forest and things like that. And we are probably looking at buying a piece of property at that point that will not have electric and water on it. If it if we find a piece that can, that'll be a great bonus. But we're going to be open to that because basically it's going to be a true retreat uh, with things cashed on it. The, the, the type of thing that is a little more typical of a survival retreat, we'll be able to take the RV up there if we need to. Uh, we'll have everything that we absolutely need to be sustainable there for at least 60 days. Uh, so we'll probably have to look at putting a well in on the property if there's no water available. And that's likely not going to be available even if electricity is. Uh, but we're going to do that. And you might ask why I would do that when I'm already kind of in a pretty dead gone good place. 
there's always the potential to need a fallback location. No matter how well stocked and well planned a retreat is, there can just be things that are geographic in nature that require you to, to, to bug out a little bit further. But the other side is I always say do things that will improve your life today, even if nothing goes wrong. Well, that piece of land will be our private little camping facility. That piece of land might be a place where I do some survival training. Uh, that piece of land might be a place where I do quite a bit of filming. That piece of land will absolutely be a place that I'll set up like a deer lease and have feeders on and what have you and be able to go there and hunt for deer and squirrel and other game. Uh, hopefully I can find something, again, bordering National Forest because then I have that as my backyard, so to speak, and have millions of acres that I can hunt. So it's a, it's a calculated choice that we've made that we're already decided we're going to do that's going to allow us that flexibility. Now, the beauty is, since we have an RV, um, we can basically go there for a week at a time, be completely self-contained with nothing on the property at all. So that opens up some doors. So maybe that opens up some ideas for you as well. Because I think having, you know, even if it's just a couple hours from the city, five, ten acres or something like that, even if it's off-grid, and a little travel trailer. You don't have to go out and buy a new one like I did. There's a lot of those for sale. There's a lot of low-end, you know, small, 30-foot and under, RV, pull-behind. They need some work and all, but they're okay. You know, if they're tow-behind, they don't have a motor to worry about. They're selling between five dollars and $10,000 right now. Bam, retreat. So there's a lot of flexibility out there. And then you own a piece of property. And to me, that is true wealth. Uh, maybe we'll do a, few, a show in the future because I have some people worried about imminent domain and things like that, about ways to try to protect your property, uh, insure your property. I've talked about that in the past. Maybe I should talk about it a little bit more in depth. But that kind of wraps it up for today. So I want you to think about land ownership. And even if you're an apartment dweller, one thing you need to always remember, it costs nothing to shop for land. It only costs money to buy land. You should be shopping for land all the time. It is the best educational process to take to eventually buy a piece of property. The more familiar you are with pricing and you watch fluctuations in the market and what causes them, the better you can time and negotiate your purchase. And owning land is a great way to start living that better life. On that note, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Time to get you up or even if they You can scream and you can holler Spend